family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunther, your host. Looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation. A hit of jazz, some street philosophy, and our special guest today, a frequent guest. Whenever he's giving a concert, he's nice enough to come in here and play for us, David Temple. Wonderful classical guitarist is putting together music of Latin America for a concert uh, this evening uh, in Rhinebeck. So uh, we'll get some live guitar. Uh, We'll get some philosophy from our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. And some jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. Ron Van Wormer is co-hosting. And uh, we will be talking about an article that a friend of mine sent me. Uh, published in Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone does some great articles. This one really hits the mark. It's called The Unraveling of America. Um, and it's about the fact that uh, all empires rise and fall. Sorry, folks, that's how the game works. Uh, I don't remember much about American history from public school education, but I do remember the Spanish once ruled the seas. They don't anymore. The Italians once did. They don't anymore. The French did. The Dutch did. Before us, it was the the Brits. And next, say hello to the Chinese. But we'll talk about how we can deal with it psychologically if you stay tuned to the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. Uh, Hal's in the midst of a move. Yeah, and things are uh, disappearing from the station. Uh, <laughs> there's no printer. There's no uh, uh, the microphone here. One of them doesn't work. The phone is being funky and and all lit up orange. And uh, who well, knows? Well, there's What's a reason on? for it, and it, it it actually relates to. A word I've been using on the program a lot, my oh. new favorite word, liminal. <laughs> yes. Which refers to being kind of, be, it can refer to, I guess, mentally, psychologically, being kind of in a transition, right? Yeah. We're, we, we're moving on from something we're used to towards something new, but we're in the transitional phrase phase, and that's certainly true with Radio Woodstock, which is moving. Right. How long have we been here at Utopia? About 20 years, I think. 20 years at Tinker Street, and then 20 years here. And and the next 20 years. (laughs) We'll be uh, very spiritual because we're going to a church. Yeah. I stopped by there the other day, and I went through the whole building, and it's absolutely beautiful. Well, I guess I should – I don't talk – you know, I I have a real estate license, um, don't talk a lot about real estate on the show because that's not what the show's about. Mm-hmm. But 
Uh, I was directly involved in this because uh, I actually represented oh. both the buyer and seller. <laughs> um, a friend of mine uh, owned a church uh-huh. um, on Route 28, beautiful church. Oh. That was his office and living space. And when the owner of Radio Woodstock called me up and said, hey, do you know of any commercial spaces? I said, well, there aren't too many, but uh, a friend of mine selling his church, which is a perfect <laughs> location. Next thing we know, we were... Took a while, but we got the deal done. It's a beautiful building. It really is, and and the uh, renovation that they're doing is extraordinary. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, sometimes change is uh, is frightening, but this change is exciting. It really is, and um, uh, we don't have exact timing, but probably this fall, like in yeah. the next month or two. But meanwhile, things are being moved out of here, <laughs> and uh, my mail slot's gone, so I don't know where my mail is, but. Um, uh, but we'll make do. Yeah, yeah. Our phone system's a little wacky, so. Um, Not sure what's going on there, but we'll, we'll, we'll get by. Yeah, we will get by one way or the other. And uh, very exciting. I'm looking for the new space, which actually had a stage built in. Yeah. Which was being opened up. It was never really used uh, before. And um, uh, it's going to be a beautiful uh, performance space. Yes. Yeah. And um, uh, a funny story about it. Uh-huh. Um, real estate always has a lot of moving parts. And this one had more than most. I won't get into the, the weeds, but... <laughs> okay. Um, but after dealing with some significant issues that had to be hurdled over... I get an email. Um, The seller's attorney informs me that according to the deed, when the owner purchased it from from a church, Uh uh, that church then moved its location elsewhere, not, not too far away. According to the deed, the bell, Mm. It had a huge bell up in the belfry, um, which was so heavy, it had a huge cord, and it would take two people to pull it down to ring it. Ah. But it functioned quite well, so it it weighed tons. (laughs) According to the deed, the church had the right of first refusal if the church was sold to the bell. Ah, okay. And it... It could have been a month of delay because they had to come and look at it. Then they figured, how are we getting out of here? They got an estimate. It was like $12,000 with cranes. <laughs> nice. And then if they any damage they do, they got to repair. It was just, it was a nightmare. Fortunately, the church thought better of it and said, you know, well, we really can't move this thing and signed a release. So but, we got a bell. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. <clears throat> Beautiful bell. We can ring out every uh, every afternoon. Yeah. Well, we now that relates to a subject we talked about in the within the past month when we talked about time and how, uh, thanks to Dr. Einstein, um, uh, we um, we're very confused about time because we have no concept of what time is. Right. And Einstein proved mathematically no such thing as objective time. Uh huh. We say that can't be right. Of course there's objective time, but there isn't. We created objective time. How did we do it? The first clocks 
in human history were created by churches. Right. So that people would know when it was time to come and pray. Call to church. Yeah. So, Still do it. And that's that's where we got timepieces from. Yeah. <laughs> there were sundials before that. Uh-huh. But um, the, the first actual mechanical clocks were church bells. And, you know— um, they still, many of them ring at noon every day, as a, I don't mm-hmm. know, a tradition. And now um, the siren goes off at noon every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just to keep us in time so we know it's noon and the whole community knows. All artifact, all created by humans, and we forget that. Yeah. Um, uh, at any rate, you know, we have, we have biological time. Our, our bodies have clocks. Uh-huh. circadian rhythm and all that jazz um, we know that when we're engaged in something that interests us time goes much faster than when we're bored or upset yeah. or stoned anxious about it or st- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, so that's you know there's psychological time yeah. but there's no such thing as objective time yeah I'm, we made it up I'm. just like we forget we made up language there are no letters in the alphabet in the universe. Right. Yeah. We created it. Pretty clever. Yeah. Of us sapiens. We created it. But um, one thing we haven't done a good job with is homo sapiens. And we certainly <clears throat> have to learn it on our own because our educational system doesn't really focus on it. And that is <clears throat> the inevitability of change and ways of working through big changes. Uh Our standard go-to position is freak out. (laughs) Yeah. But change is inevitable. The famous pre-Socratic philosopher, Heraclitus, not much much of what he wrote survived. Uh But what did, this guy was quite brilliant and very um, concise. And he's, uh, he put it very succinctly. Uh, one can never step into the same river twice. Right. It's always different. Boom. Um, <clears throat> and that's certainly true when it comes to empires. And I've been saying on this show, and I, I really believe it, that when we look through COVID, which is the elephant in the room right now, uh, the political division in this country... Um, and all sorts of anxieties, underneath it all is the fact that, like every other empire, we have reached our heights and are on the other side. It doesn't mean we're disappearing. Italy didn't disappear. Spain didn't disappear. The Netherlands didn't disappear. (laughs) The Brits didn't disappear. Spain. They just stopped being the primary empire. Right. The way it works, rise and fall. And... In the computer age, things are moving much faster. And so, in fact, the United States has been the primary, the, the, the leading empire for a relatively short period of time compared to the others because things move more quickly. Right. Yeah. We did not become the leader of the world until the end of World War II. Right. And that was 1945. That's 75 years ago. Um, so... We're not going away, but 
<clears throat> we are clearly an empire in decline. And there's a, there's a codicil to that or an attachment to that, which when I read it, I went, oh, that is apocryphal. Another uh, great word. Yeah. And that's when I read for the first time that in 2016, <clears throat> if you want to know where our politics is, this is really all you need to know. Um, in 2016, for the first time in American history, more than 50% of Americans born are non-white. Mm. And that's freaking out <clears throat> a lot of folks. <laughs> a lot of white people. <laughs> and, not, and, and I'm not just talking about overt racists yeah we got too many of them but they're still a <clears throat> it's a minority it's something about 18 percent or so you know, too many but but a lot of white folks uh educated and not who don't know the stat just given which is that more than 50 percent of the babies born now are non-white mm -hmm. but they get that we're no longer what they were taught we were, which was a white Christian nation. Right. We ain't that anymore. Mm -mm. Um, and that's what Trump used rather smartly, if not cynically, to get elected. Wow. And as we've said before, the people that put him over the top of the Electoral College were rural whites in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and in Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Who had voted for Obama four years before? Yeah. But they were angry. They didn't understand why all these crazy changes were happening. <clears throat> and politicians aren't going to give you the truth. They're going to they're just give you the warp view that serves them. Right. Either party. So, they're um, certainly not going to tell us <clears throat> that we're in decline. No. <laughs> and I'll never forget when Barack Obama, who I respected as a human being, uh -huh. Never thought he was a great president, but he, he did some great things. He, he pulled us out of a horrific um, economic collapse, yeah. thanks to the previous administration. Um, <clears throat> but I'll never, for, I'll never forget when he was in, in the midst of that 2008 debacle, financial debacle, the mortgage right. crisis. I remember him getting, and he was a great speaker. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he said to the nation something which I understood why he was saying it, but it made me, it made my back really go up. Hmm. He said, we're going to get out of this, and we're going to get out of this by outcompeting the rest of the world. <clears throat> and I'm going, great. That's what got us in this mess. <laughs> but <clears throat> um, <clears throat> the fact is that we are very competitive. We are still the, right now, mm -hmm. still the leading economy in the world. The dollar rules the roost yeah. in the global economy, but that is shifting. And, um, and that's where a lot of this freak out is uh, because politicians are going to talk about how great we are and how we're the leader of the free world and this and that. Right now, we still are, mm -hmm. but... We don't have the power once we're, and that's just the way it works. Yeah. So anyway, a friend of mine sent me an article that really gets at this in a very intelligent and perceptive way. And the article is called The Unraveling of America. Now, it's not a, uh, a slam job on the United States. 
It's not about that. It's about trying to look at what is actually happening, okay, mm-hmm. with as best as we can, <clears throat> without seeing it through the prejudiced eyes of a Democrat or a Republican or a conservative or a progressive. What is actually going on? The author is an anthropologist. His name is Wade Davis. This was published in Rolling Stone. Uh, recently, I don't have the date here, The Unraveling of America. Um, Wade Davis holds, he's got an interesting position. August 6th. Oh, thank you, August 6th. Wade Davis holds the leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk at the University of British Columbia. Leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk. It's an interesting (laughs) position. Pretty specific. So I'm going to read parts of it, and we'll have at it. Never in our lives have we experienced such a global phenomenon. For the first time in the history of the world, all humanity, informed by the unprecedented reach of digital technology, has come together, focused on the same existential threat, consumed by the same fears and uncertainties, eagerly anticipating the same as yet unrealized promises of medical science Mm. in a single season civilization has been brought low by a microscopic parasite 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt Hmm. COVID-19 attacks our physical bodies this is the key point but also the cultural foundation of our lives the toolbox of community and connectivity that is for the human what claws and teeth represent to the tiger. Hmm. A little aside, because, again, when I hear a really, someone who has a good right brain, big picture view, I always stop and go, wow. <laughs> yeah. Because we get caught up in the details. And the details have importance. But I'll never forget, I mean, we all know this, but yet I didn't know it. Hmm. that two of the keys to why humans are the most powerful species is because unlike our mammal cousins, we discovered how to use fire Mm -hmm. to cook. And until I read this, it, it didn't dawn on me that, okay, we know that's going to certainly help, help prevent people from dying of starvation at a time when it was pretty brutal getting food. There was no, we didn't know much about plants. Right. It, was, it was basically go out, try to survive getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> or, or die of the elements, kill a huge animal, which could kill you, uh-huh. and uh, figure out how to butcher it and eat it. Yeah. Um, when we discovered fire, so much more calories got into the human brain that the human brain grew at a rate much faster than our mammal cousins. So one of the reasons we have larger brains is because of the discovery of fire. Right. The second big shit, then there was, you know, some important, the invention of the wheel certainly was big. Yeah. But the really, the exponential leap after discovery of fire 
And by the way, I remember my, my, my cousin Nick, who I haven't seen in about 40 years, was a filmmaker. And he came to my high school to give a talk to our class. We were asked to bring in people to give a talk. And uh -huh. he gave it. And he talked about the fact that as a filmmaker, he was basically recapitulating what our ancient prehistoric ancestors did around a campfire. That the news of the day was told around the campfire, sure. around a fire, at campfire at night. That was that was the seven o'clock news. Uh huh. And film basically takes light fire and creates ah. a screen. Anyway, interesting. Yeah. Um, so now we understand how to cook food, but it was the invention of farming that really ah. just exponentially created a leap in human intelligence because now humans could create cities. Right. It never occurred to me before. You can't have cities without farming. Uh-huh. Because you couldn't be able to... People you couldn't feed them. No, because typically we, we, we lived in small groups, families, mm -hmm. or tribe, very small tribes, which go out and hunt. Right. Not very efficient. <laughs> could you imagine a city of... Even 100,000 people of small four to six unit families going out and individually hunting? <laughs> there wouldn't be four to six families. Uh, it wouldn't last long. Very long. So we take for granted. Um, and then, of course, we screwed up by chemicalizing right. everything and all. Right. And, and just making anyway, it so big. Anyway, I, I diverge. Back to the unraveling of America. Yeah, let's. let's. Okay. Our interventions to date, dealing with COVID-19, have largely focused on mitigating the rate of spread, flattening the curve of morbidity. There's no treatment at hand and no certainty of a vaccine on the near horizon. Interesting. You know, how the fastest vaccine ever developed mm -hmm. was for mumps. Huh. It took four years. Wow. Well, too late for me. <laughs> COVID-19 killed 100,000 Americans in four months. There is some evidence that natural infection may not imply immunity, leaving some to question how effective a vaccine will be, even assuming one can be found. And it must be safe. If the global population is to be immunized, lethal complications in just one person in a thousand would imply death of millions. It's complicated stuff. It is. Pandemics and plagues have a way of shifting the course of history and not always in a manner immediately evident to the survivors. In the 14th century, the Black Death killed close to half of Europe's population. I had always read it was about a third, but I th half, think about that. Mm. Half of Europe destroyed. And by oh. the way, it killed rich and poor. Oh, yeah. A scarcity of labor led to increased wages. Rising expectations culminated in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, an inflection point that marked the beginning of the end of the feudal order. So in other words, in the small picture, COVID-19 was a horrific tragedy, kills, and the people who got it died and suffered terribly. Half of the continent dies from it. And yet, it gave rise to the Renaissance. Yeah. It gave, it ended not only millions of lives, it ended a feudal system and led to a more 
capitalistic system. Right. The COVID pandemic will be remembered as such a moment in history, a seminal event whose significance will unfold only in the wake of the crisis. It will mark this era as much as the 1914 assassination of Archduke Ferdinand mm. that set off World War I, yeah. stock market crash of 29, and the 1933 ascent of Adolf Hitler, which became fundamental benchmarks of the last century. Now, for those who say, wait a minute, this is a very deadly virus, right? About a million people worldwide, a couple hundred thousand Americans. That's a lot of people dying. Mm -hmm. How do you compare that to World War One and World War Two? It's easy if you stop just reading the headlines of our mainstream media and our TV news and dig a little deeper. Because here's a fact. According to the, this doesn't get reported much. According to the UN Food Program, mm -hmm. they are estimating that by closing down the global economy, I'm going to leave to another day a discussion of was that the smart thing to do. Fact is, we did it. Yeah. With a few exceptions, countries closed down to stop the spread. As a result, and this is the first time in human history. That a globe, that the global, a global can't just shut down. Right. Well, it took longer for pandemics to spread around the world in the past sure. because people weren't traveling as extensively as they do today. Good point. So everything ha happens much more quickly. Now. Yeah. Okay. But here's a stat, a piece of data. According to the UN Food Program, the closing down of the global economy will put at least. 100 million additional people in danger of starvation, mm. many of them children. You need to put that in the equation Yeah. when you talk about keeping economies shut down. We understand why, we, why the economies were shut down. But this is not going to be the last pandemic in our lifetime. I don't believe so. I don't if believe you so. listen to some of the global health experts. So we better... Do better next time. Yeah. Okay. So when he, when this anthropologist compares COVID-19, now again, 200,000 Americans dying, a million people dying, world, that's a lot of people. But here's another little piece of data for perspective because the human brain is capable of perspective and we normally lose it mm -hmm. when we're in states of anxiety. Um. I'll come back to it. <laughs> okay. But, um, COVID's historic significance lies not in what it implies for our daily lives. Change, after all, is the one constant when it comes to culture. All peoples in all places at all times are always dancing with new possibilities for life. As companies eliminate or downsize central offices, employees work from home. Restaurants close, shopping malls shutter, streaming brings entertainment, sporting events into the home, airline travel becomes more problematic. People will adapt as we've always done. Here's the stat that went out of my head. Ready? Uh-huh. We can agree that it's tragic that this pandemic has killed 200,000 Americans, a million people worldwide. It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to let my Google Assistant answer this next question. Okay. Hey, Google. <laughs> How many people die every year from air pollution? 4.6 million people. According to Science Daily, the World Health Organization estimates that 4.6 million people die each year from causes directly attributable to air pollution. Okay. So... This doesn't mean that COVID isn't a terrible pandemic. Mm -hmm. But what are we doing about air pollution, which is ki killing 4.6 million people every year? Yeah. Oh, hey, Google. How many people die every year around the world from water pollution? Here's a summary from Seeker. Nearly 2 million people die annually from contaminated drinking water and unsafe sanitation. All right, just do the math. And that's on top of the four million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's just two uh, things that impact okay. humans so, and life and death. Right. So meanwhile, we keep, I mean, look, there are some very valiant people doing really good work to try to shift us to a more green economy. Mm -hmm. We're much too slow. But no one panics over that. I know. So all I'm saying is, perspective. All right, let's get back to the article. To be sure, financial uncertainty will cast a long shadow. Hovering over the global economy for some time will be the sober realization that all the money in the hands of all the nations on earth will never be enough to offset the losses sustained when, when an entire world ceases to function. Okay, yeah. we're not going to really understand the ramifications of closing the world down, the world economy down, probably for another six months to a year. Mm -hmm. Maybe more. Maybe more. But according to this anthropologist, financial uncertainty will cast a long shadow. Hovering over the global economy for some time will be the sober realization that all the money in the hands of all the nations on Earth will never be enough to offset the losses sustained when an entire world ceases to function with workers and businesses facing a choice between economic and biological survival. I don't agree about that choice, but anyway, that's, we'll leave that to the anthropologist. Unsettling as these <laughs> transitions and circumstances will be, short of a complete economic collapse, none stands out as a turning point in history. But what surely does is the devastating impact that the pandemic has had on the reputation and international standing of the United States of America. <clears throat> In a dark season of pestilence, COVID has reduced to tatters the illusion of American exceptionalism. At the height of the crisis, with more than 2,000 dying each day, Americans found themselves members of a failed state ruled by a dysfunctional and incompetent government largely responsible for death rates that added a tragic coda to America's claim to supremacy. For the first time, the international community felt compelled to send disaster relief to Washington. Mm. For more than two centuries, reported the Irish Times, quote, the United States has stirred a very wide range of feelings in the rest of the world, love and <laughs> hatred, fear and hope, envy and contempt, awe and anger, just like every empire before it. Right. Those were my words, okay? Yes, yes. But there is one emotion that has never been directed towards the U.S. until now. Pity. Hmm. 
As American doctors and nurses eagerly awaited emergency airlifts of basic supplies from China, the hinge of history opened to the Asian century. No empire long endures, even if you anticipate the demise. Every kingdom is born to die. The 15th century belonged to the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Was that Vasco da Gama? I'm trying to remember my high school history. <laughs> and, and who remembers that? The 16th century belonged to Spain. 17th century to the Dutch. France dominated the 18th, Britain the 19th. Bled and left bankrupt by the Great War, World War I, the British maintained a pretense of domination as late as 1935 when the empire reached its greatest geographical extent. All right. A point I want to make that's going to upset all the Trump haters. Yes, this administration has screwed this up royally. Yes. However... The United States would have done poorly compared to the rest of the world, despite our modern science and tech, technological expertise. We still would have, we would have probably done better under a different administration. I'm not saying we wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. But here's why we still would have done more poorly to other industrialized Western countries. Because of the crap that we eat. <laughs> okay? Viruses attack immune systems. Right. While our politicians and our health officials tell us, hey, wait for the vaccine, hide out, stay in fear until the vaccine comes. Number one, there may never be a vaccine. Number two, if we do get a vaccine, we don't know how successful it will be. There's no way to know. Mm -hmm. Viruses mutate. It's a moving target. Which is why we get different flu shots every season. Which work fifty, which are fifty percent effective. Right, fifty percent. That's the that's the, those are the stats. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that means it doesn't work fifty percent of the time, and that's considered a successful vaccine. Right. But we're told wait for the vaccine, including our governor. Not a good strategy. How about improving your immune system? Well, that's something we should do all the time. Well, we don't. And the American immune system is crap. But we don't clean up the environment either. Well, we don't clean up the environment. And look at what we eat. Yeah. Look at what our government subsidizes. Sugar, sodas, sweets, factory farm meat. Meat, yeah. The American immune system overall is shot. (laughs) <laughs> it can't deal with a virus. No. Like COVID. Um, but find me. Please find me. Find me a, a CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, progressive news outlet talking about, hey, let's. how do we improve our immune systems? Well, we don't talk about that. We don't even... We don't even you know, we take a pill rather than, than change our diet. If you have a lot of high cholesterol, don't change your diet. Take a pill. That's what we do. My fa- one of my, we'll take a break in a second. One of my favorite <laughs> statements ever from a, one of my closest friends who I love dearly. His father was in the meat business. He has a system. His father lived to be like 95 years old. My friend eats... Red meat about five days a week, uh-huh. which is what we do growing up, right? 
and he's relatively healthy. He, his body can pretty much deal with it, except high cholesterol. So they put him on, um, what's, the, I can't, what's the drug? Yeah. Lipitor. Right. And I'll never forget, it was such a great moment because of the tone of his voice. He had a favorite steakhouse he would go to once a month. <laughs> and he called me coming back from the steakhouse, just gleaming, oh, what a steak, what a meal. Thank God for Lipitor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that is the philosophy of, uh, so anyway, of our society. Just some perspective, okay? Yeah. Trump screwed this up. Yeah. Uh, made it worse than it needed to be. But he's not, he's the main reason for a lot of problems, but he's not the main reason why America is suffering worse than most highly industrialized, technically technologically efficient, uh, uh, advanced countries. We did the statistics on soda a few weeks ago. Right. That's all, you don't have to go much further than that. <laughs> it's eating people's insides. And that's every other ad is for a soda. Yeah. Uh, but I digress. Well. Let's, let's take a break. We'll come back. <laughs> all right. Okay, this is uh, Radio Woodstock, the Woodstock Roundtable in transition. Our station is moving, we mentioned, to a beautiful church in West Hurley, about five miles from here on Route 28. So we're kind of in transition. We're hoping to get the phones working uh, for Patrick and for Gus. But um, uh, David Temple's due in later, a great classical guitarist who's put together a concert this evening. Yes, a live concert with social distancing. Uh, a lawn at the Center of Performing Arts at Rhinebeck. Uh, we look forward to hearing David play here and talking about his summer suite, Music of Latin America, which he does so beautifully. We're talking about an article a friend of mine sent me, published in Rolling Stone August 6th, The Unraveling of America. It's not a diss on America at all. It's, it's an anthropologist discussing that all empires rise and fall. You know, we don't know all the reasons for the Roman Empire... Uh, eroding, but one of them was environmental. They they had lead in their glassware, right? So they were not only 
like all empires do, overextended militarily. Um, we know that their um, exploits and uh, domination of India and Africa led to the demise of the Brits, who were the empire before us. Uh, I don't know how many, our military is probably in 50 different countries. Yeah. Um, let's find that. Hang on. <laughs> Ask. Hey, Google. How many foreign countries have U.S. military troops? According to Wikipedia, the military of the United States is deployed in more than 150 countries. <laughs> <laughs> 150 countries. Wow. Check, please. Hey, we're doing what every other empire did. Well, then there's this, this thing called learning, which the human brains. But, you know, kicking and screaming, we, we're going to have to learn or we ain't going to survive as a species. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we're doing what every empire before us did. And this anthropologist is basically detailing some of the ways that we are unraveling. And why do we say this? Is it from a positive standpoint, the great Marshall McLuhan said, there's no such thing as inevitability as long as we're willing to contemplate what is happening. There it is. Got to contemplate what's happening if yeah. we're going to prosper here. Because, <laughs> again, the United States isn't going to disappear. Britain didn't disappear. The Dutch didn't disappear. French didn't disappear. Italians just stopped being the main empire yeah. and behaved badly when they were declining. Yes. Empires do that. Oh. The United States, virtually a demilitarized nation on the eve of the Second World War, never stood down in the wake of victory. Oh, there's a, there's a fact in here that I found fascinating. Uh, talking about how we won World War II, we did it. Very heroic, brave soldiers, but also um, incredible technology. Um, because the Germans and the Japanese had very high levels of technology, and if we couldn't compete with them on that basis, we would have lost. At its peak, Henry Ford's Willow Run plant produced a B-24 Liberator um, every two hours around the clock. Shipyards in Long Beach and Sausalito spat out Liberty ships at the rate of two a day for four years. When the Japanese, within six weeks of Pearl Harbor, took control of 90% of the world's rubber supply, ah. the U.S. dropped the speed limit to 35 miles to protect tires, and then in three years invented from scratch a synthetic rubber industry that allowed the Allied armies to roll over the Nazis. So there was that book written, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh -huh. Left out rubber. Yeah. According to this anthropologist, if it wasn't for um, the invention of synthetic rubber, we huh. would have lost World War II. Wow. It's pretty cool. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know that. I mean, that's what he's saying. I'm not an historian, but an interesting fact, at least to consider. Uh -huh. um, we were basically a demilitarized nation on the eve of the Second World War. To this day, American troops, uh, here he has it. I didn't even have to ask Google. We're we have troops in 150 countries. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> hey, that's okay. We don't because all of our roads and bridges and um, uh, our economy is thriving here for everybody. Right. So why not? Yeah. Since the 1970s, China has not once gone to war. Hello. Wow. The U.S. has not spent a day at peace. Yeah. President Jimmy Carter recently noted that in its 242-year history, America has enjoyed 16 years of peace. Wow. Since 2001, the United States has spent over $6 trillion on military operations in war, money that might have been invested in uh, some infrastructure. China, meanwhile built its nation, pouring more cement every three years than America did in the entire 20th century. Yeah. You know, I mean, it amazes me that uh, a city in China has 12 million people in it, and I had never heard of it. Yeah. And if you don't know about their Belt and Road Initiative... Oh, yeah. It's why they're they're the next empire. Um. Again, don't remember much from my history, but I remember Mar- we all learned Marco Polo mm-hmm. traveled. And travel was pretty difficult, uh, pretty much horseback um, and walking uh, from Italy to China and brought back all this information about this whole new culture. And that was called the, uh, what the was silk, that? The Silk Road. It was a Silk Road, right? Yeah. The Silk was the big trade item. Well, China's updated that for the 21st century, and they're building a trillion-dollar Belt and Road Initiative that is connecting them economically through Southern Asia and into Africa, even extends a little bit to South America, where they are investing in these countries. Mm -hmm. They're building the docks for the shipping. Yeah. Now, they're not doing it because they're uh, for high moral reasons. They're doing it for economic reasons. They want the resources in those right. countries. But that Belt and Road Initiative is going to be the story of the next 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Hey, but we can be proud. We have troops in 150 countries. As America policed the world, the violence came home. On D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Allied death toll was 4,414. In 2019, domestic gun violence killed that many American men and women by the end of April. Wow. By June of that year, guns in the hands of ordinary Americans had caused more casualties than the Allies suffered in Normandy in the first month of a campaign that consumed the military strength of five nations. Check, please. Yeah. More than any other country, the United States in the post-war era lionized the individual at the expense of community and family. Now we get to something that's been on my mind for the last 20 years that I'm trying to figure this out, is how are we going to shift out of this thing? And so I started studying the Italian Renaissance because I'd like to believe that at the same time we're on the precipice of a global devastation this pandemic's just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. um we have a we have we have an economic system teetering on the brink and it's due to collapse you know in the great depression out of the ashes rises the phoenix right mm-hmm. 
And I, I'm convinced that at the same time we're going to we're entering a dark age. We're like the previous dark age. Out of it can come a renaissance. So I was looking for parallels. Well, one of them is is plague or pandemic. Mm-hmm. The Black Plague was a major motivator in Italians in in, in, in the the literate in in Italian walled cities a little more protected um saying you know what human the human story could end here we better at least collect as much wisdom as we can and that kind of led to a search for the ancient greek wisdom which had been literally buried by the churches in the middle ages literally in the catacombs of monasteries we don't want people wise we want them controlled and so the Black Plague, as horrific as it was, killing half of Europe, helped lead to a Renaissance. Um, but what was the main philosophy of the Renaissance? It was called humanism. And the basic tenet of humanism was, an, was the extolling of the individual, which was crucial at that time. During the Middle Ages, the church and the, royal, and the monarchies crushed any notion of individuality. Yeah. You, were sub, you were a subject to a monarchy or to a church. You had no individual identity. Right. Humanism was a philosophy growing out of the Renaissance, along with the great art and the great architecture, and the, and the, and the discovery of ancient Greek philosophy and wisdom. Humanism was saying, whoa, I am an individual and I can create great work and I can think for myself. There was no such thing as private libraries before the Renaissance in the Middle Ages. Right. That very shift, that important, imp- uh, uh, huge shift to the to the recognition of what it, of being an individual is now what could end our species. The cult of the individual, never so fierce as with the American culture. Oh, my God. What do we learn in history? The pioneer spirit. Yeah. Well, what do those pioneers do? They committed genocide to Native Americans, and they just took over. Uh-huh. And then destroyed the, uh, the land that, uh, at this point. And now what made America great, which was our arable land, is pretty much toxic. So... Again, every previous empire did similar things, but what created the Renaissance was humanism. If there's going to be a next Renaissance, a 21st century, it's going to have to be some kind of post-humanist philosophy which says, wait a minute, what's important is not me as an individual. What's important is how I can collaborate with others because we now have a worldwide web that allows it. And that World Wide Web is filled with fake news and <laughs> photos of kids eating their oatmeal. I get it. But it's also filled with the wisdom of the world. Yeah. It's there to be Got to get through the noise to get to it. Yeah. Will we in time? We'll see. But what made America great, which was the, this whole story of the rugged individual, the pioneer spirit, right, is now going to destroy us if we don't shift it. Yeah. How else can you explain the fact that 
1% of the American population own the majority of the wealth. A culture cannot survive that. Just do the math. Um, more than any other country, the United States in the post-war era lionized the individual at the expense of community and family. And I disagree with him. I think you, uh, I, people can get angry with me. I don't care. <laughs> we, I'm not saying don't love your family members. I'm just saying the nuclear family is a blip on the evolutionary scale, and it's not what's going to survive. If we are, if we're going to be infatuated with the nuclear family, we're not making it. Hmm. The global family is in need of help. Okay. Right. Get over it. Yeah. More than any, all right. Um, with slogans like 24-7 celebrating complete dedication to the workplace, men and women exhausted themselves in jobs that only reinforced their isolation from their families and their communities. Mm -hmm. The average American father spends less than 20 minutes a day in direct communication with his child. Wow. 20 minutes? Yep. Where is that? Where does that take the nuclear family? By the time a youth reaches 18, he or she will have spent two years watching television or staring at a laptop screen. Again... That laptop screen is also opening them up to wisdom that was never available before. So that's where I take issue with my anthropologist friend here. If they're looking at the right things. And contributing to an obesity epidemic, the Joint yeah. Chiefs of Staff have called a national security crisis. All right, we're going to stop there because our good buddy Patrick <laughs> Carlin is calling in. We, our phone system is on the blink, so he's calling me directly. Hey, Patrick. Patrick, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm talking, man. Should I turn you off? Uh, yeah, because we got you going through our microphone. Is that All working? Right, so you're going yeah, it's off working. On my radio, dude. All right. So anyway, so we here we, I am. Well, listen, we always can. Man, did you give me ammo today? That's my job. <laughs> oh, I gotta tell you. Uh, first, I gotta pay homage to what I'm calling New York Central. Uh, something nice that came my way from amateur growing people. I love the farmers. God bless them. They were the first place we hit out when we left my old man in 1937, a dairy farm in South Ballsburg. You want to work hard? Get a dairy farm. <laughs> You'll learn about farming, man. Anyway, I respect those people. I respect everybody. And you know, you're talking about the people worrying about black and brown, about people of color. I go with black and white. I go with black and white because most people I meet that are black go with black and white. And the people I knew in Trinidad and Tobago and all, the black man, hey, what do you got? I mean, come on, man. And uh, talking about Latinos, well, get out of here. You got the, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Cuba. You got Chicanos out in uh, uh, California. And you got Mexican. You got everybody. They no Latino. Everybody is their own scene. And you got dialects and things, you know. So uh, you got to just relax. Everybody's just an individual. And I was just a lucky dude. I ran into so many different kinds of people and stuff. And nobody never cared about what color I was or nothing like that. And uh, so I just get along with it. And I'm into a, a brotherhood trip. And uh, so you start on oh, the other trip and the unraveling of America. Get real, dude. I'm not an anthropologist, but I know a lot about people. And I've been back and forth a little bit in the U.S. of A. And I wrote a thing. They had a trip uh, in uh, 1976, the bicentennial year. And uh, we were living up in the woods in Vermont, working for $2.30 an hour with other third-generation Vermonters and real American people. 
and most of the town was on food stamps because of the high amount of pay. And uh, nobody minded because we were all eating and all. But the thing was, this contest came up. One of the guys on the judging team was Charles Schultz, the guy who did peanuts with a, a thing I enjoy, Lucy and Snoopy and all. Uh, but anyway, he was one of the judges. And the thing was, uh, write something about the tricentennial. <laughs> and I I sat down at my, my opening. I, you know, I had a chance to win 10 grand if I would have paid attention and wrote a nice brown-nosing <laughs> statement. But I wrote, I said, hey, man, there will be no tricentennial. And then I went into about 50 different reasons why not. And when I got my notification in the mail that I had not won first place, <laughs> like that was a revelation, I found out that I was among only 3% of the respondents to that contest who had a negative outlet, uh, outlook on what was coming up. And I thought to myself, well, 3% of us know what's happening. Now, back in the olden days before the genocide went down, we'd have been made scouts. We'd have been scouts with the various tribes that inhabited this place. And we'd have seen, oh, you know, I see this, we'd have been paid attention to. But uh, there, you know, you're just scorned as a hippie, a disgruntled uh, person. Well, but don't look like you, what's a big bit? Hey, you know what I like about the, the people of color? I, I do black because I remember when they had all kinds of rolling papers back in the 60s. <laughs> and one of them that we had was a beauty. It was called Blanco y Negro. And it showed a black dude blowing a saxophone. And it was just a great one because to me it was a combination of reefer and music, which I say uh, is a good key to uh, brotherhood, reefer and music. So uh, I don't look for it to stick together like an empire. Oh, and you know what happened to the empire besides them eating lead in the, in the Roman tripper? Besides eating lead, Alaric came to town with the Visigoths. Yeah, man. And uh, he uh, finished them off nicely. And you know what? They had it coming. <laughs> they had it coming. I got no pity for the Romans, man. And you want to talk about empires? Talk about Genghis Khan. There was a dude who knew how to get it done. And when he came through town, they impregnated every female going. They found this dude's genes everywhere, old Genghis. So it's an amazing group we're in. And my question of the day to myself before I started listening was, do we really exist? <laughs> hey, you want to ponder something? Hey, always like a dose of Patrick. That's our inoculation. Right. I'm right here. Uh, we got to run, but um, we always appreciate uh, a f a f some words of wisdom from you. Give our best to the family hugs, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. I got to tell you about this, man. Uh, the vibes were out on the Bell trip, and uh, I played Sammy Kay's trip of a three little bell, little Jimmy Brown, and they rang the bell and all. We're, we're, we're gonna, we, have, we have some musical surprises for you, but we got to run, my friend. We'll see you next week. All right. Let me just say, Andale Caballeros. <laughs> take care, Patrick. We're going to take our hour break. And come back. Uh, we'll see if we can patch in with the Sultan. We've got. Uh, we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox, and uh, David Temple is going to play some guitar for us. <laughs> 